and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello, I'm Serena Best, Professor of Materials Science at the University of Cambridge and immediate past president of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. I'm delighted to be able to help host this podcast, which covers a very current and topical area of interest to all of us. In the UK and across the world, there's growing concern about the challenges presented by infection. As researchers in the field of biomedical materials, we believe that we have a role to play in developing new therapeutic solutions. In this podcast, I'm joined by two senior academics who lead biomaterials research in very different fields. To talk about ophthalmic biomaterials, we have Rachel Williams, who is Professor of Ophthalmic Bioengineering at the University of Liverpool. And to talk about orthopaedic biomaterials, we have Paul Hatton, Professor of Biomaterial Science at the University of Sheffield. I'll just take a few minutes to ask Paul and Rachel to introduce themselves. So first to Paul. Thank you, Serena. Yes, I'm Paul Hatton. I'm Professor of Biomaterial Science here at Sheffield University and I'm also the Director of Research at the Dental School. And I think it's probably also worth mentioning I'm now the new Chair for the uh, Biomedical Application Division of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. So I have a huge interest, obviously, in the development of materials and medical applications. And one particularly important area we'll be covering today will, will be there, the development of antimicrobial material. And Rachel? Yes, thank you, Serena. Um, I'm Rachel Williams. I'm Professor of Ophthalmic Bioengineering at the University of Liverpool, as, as Serena said. I've been working uh, now closely with my clinical colleagues in, in St Paul's Eye Unit, looking at uh, materials, developing materials, both bulk materials and their surface properties for applications to overcome problems with vision, vision loss, uh, both at the front of the eye and at the back of the eye. I've been working in that area now for over 20 years, and there's some very interesting areas coming out in particular in relation to controlling infection in the eye. So Rachel, um, could you tell us a little bit about the challenges of eye infections today and uh, what their causes are and what, what are the main issues that need to be addressed? Yes, yeah, so corneal infection is, is one of the commonest causes uh, or conditions that are affecting the cornea. It's very painful, as, as I'm sure you're aware, if you have a, a small a scratch on your cornea is very uncomfortable. If you imagine that that was actually an infection, and in particular, if that could actually lead to a corneal ulcer, uh, that is, is a really very serious condition and actually can result in 5% of cases of, of blindness worldwide uh, can be due to, to corneal ulceration. The, the cornea, as in like the skin, has a, has a barrier that maintains um, a protection against invading microorganisms, but this barrier can be disrupted for various reasons, for example, for corneal surgery or to trauma or surface ocular diseases. And actually, interestingly, is it a major problem or, or cause of corneal infections is contact lens wear. So wearing a contact lens for vision is associated with a fold increase in corneal infection. In this case, what seems to be happening is that the microbial or bacterial biofilm uh, can be 
can form on a contact lens and can end up uh, being reintroduced into the into the corneal onto the ocular surface. So when you and also actually contact lens will protect the biofilm when you try to treat it with antibiotic treatments. And the way to treat corneal infections is typically using uh, antibiotic eye drops. But as, as we all know, when you uh, put eye drops into your eye, it's an extremely inefficient process and 95% of it runs down your cheek. And, and if you could imagine you've got actually a very sore and watery eye because it's infected, that actually makes it even more difficult to get effective antibiotic treatment for the corneal tissue. So if you actually have a corneal ulcer, this requires you to put antibiotic eye drops in every 15 minutes for the first 48 hours. This is obviously very, very difficult for patients and, and generally requires them to be hospitalized. This has to be done throughout the night. So you actually have to wake the patient up uh, to administer the drops. And even after the first few days, there's a, probably a need to put in drops every two to six hours for the next two to three weeks. So this is very difficult for patients to, to deal with. Yes, thank you very much. And Paul, does this have any similarities with orthopaedic infections? Yes, uh, surprisingly perhaps given these are very different anatomical sites, um, but we, we certainly see while the incidence rate is very low, for those people who are afflicted by orthopaedic infections, whether that be of the bone itself or indeed of a medical device that's implanted in bone, like an artificial hip or knee, um, it can be very, very painful, very debilitating, lead to loss of mobility and have a terrible impact on quality of life, just like we, we saw in the eye. Uh, and secondly, while I say that they're quite rare, for those people who are at risk, the risk is very high indeed. So we often quote this figure of less than 1% uh, for, say, orthopedic infection or an, an artificial hip. But if you have had trauma, if you um, are aging, certainly, or compromised in some way, those risks can go up markedly. Uh, and so the second kind of commonality, as it were, is delivering antibiotics to, to bone is quite challenging. And all the more so if we're looking at an actually an infection around a device like an artificial knee or a hip. Uh, and, and that's very difficult indeed, because the blood supply, obviously, to a lump of metal or polymer uh, is, is really rather limited. Uh, and so typically we try and treat these infections with, with antibiotics uh, and failing that if it's around a device, then of course it has to be removed at great expense and inconvenience. The patient is still at an enhanced risk of infection uh, and, and this is a very expensive procedure as it were for, for a hospital and healthcare system that, that's dealing with this kind of scenario. So how are these conditions treated conventionally and, and what are the limitations? Rachel? So yes, the, as I was saying earlier, they're generally treated with uh, antibiotic drops and the difficulties are different in, in different parts of the world. Uh, one of the things that I've been interested in is working with some colleagues in, in India, for example. And in India, potential for problems associated with uh, corneal infection is about 10 times higher. And one of the reasons for this is that it's very often um, associated with damage uh, or trauma to the cornea associated with uh, people working in, the, in agriculture where they'll get a small corneal abrasion. And what can happen there is that the small abrasion get infection from the agricultural products into the eye. And very often these are fungal infections and this makes it even more difficult to treat. So in South India, for example, 70% of the infections are fungal, whereas only 30% are bacterial. And what happens here is if you don't treat these very rapidly, that they can then continue and develop into corneal ulcers and those corneal ulcers cause scarring 
and the scarring causes opacity to the, the cornea. And then once you've got an, an opaque cornea, then, or an opacity on the cornea, you have a significant loss of vision. And the only way to treat that is then with a corneal transplant. And that obviously adds significantly to the, the detrimental and expense of treating these particular conditions. So it's really important that we get antibiotics or antifungals, depending on what the invading microorganism is, treatment to start very quickly and effectively so that we can stop these progressing into these very uh, disastrous uh, corneal ulcers that then causes much more severe clinical problem. Thank you. And Paul, um, what, what are your views? Yeah, so the, the, when, when I, we started by saying there were many similarities, one area where we certainly diverge is we see very few fungal infections in, in orthopaedics relative to microorganisms, to bacteria, sorry. So, and, and of those bacteria, they are typically, again, like, like in the eye, they are typically what we call so-called commensal organisms, microorganisms that live on or in us quite naturally, often doing no harm at all. Uh, but when these become, as it were, established in bone or especially around a medical device, in the musculoskeletal system, then they can cause terrible problems because they're very, very difficult to treat. Antibiotics are in the front line. I'm, I'm not a clinician, but my clinical colleagues tell me that, that antibiotics remain the number one choice of intervention when it comes to combating deep bone infection and device-associated infection. Of course, what you have to do then, uh, you have to screen the patient to find out, well, what is the organism that we think is most likely to be causing this infection and what antibiotics are they sensitive to? And when that's been established, of course, then that, that helps the clinician to choose their antibiotic. The big, big headache, and I suspect this probably resonates with some of the challenges in, in, in the eye as well, is that we're seeing more and more of the of these so-called um, drug-resistant strains of microorganisms involved. Uh, and so these are organisms that are, that are actually like the MRSA, so multiple resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Typically, a Staphylococcus aureus is, is an organism that lives in your skin. Uh, but if this becomes established and it's, and it's antibiotic resistant, it's very pernicious and very, very difficult to treat. Uh, and often the microbiologists who are screening these uh, organisms will put in a, a wide range of antibiotics to try to knock out uh, these very difficult to shift bacteria. So what are the biomaterial strategies that you're both working on to address these major challenges? Um, Rachel? So one of the areas that I've been working in for a while now is on developing a contact lens that has antimicrobial properties. So most contact lenses that we currently use do not have any antimicrobial properties and as I say actually cause a greater risk of, of, of corneal infection. So we're making um, a contact lens out of a peptide hydrogel and this is a peptide that's based on polyeptine lysine. Now polyeptine lysine is a, is a short peptide that is used as a food preservative. So it's a, a very nice safe material it's non-toxic, it's edible and is actually used as a preservative and in the pharmaceutical industry. And it's classed as generally regarded as safe by the US Food and Drug Administration. So we can make gels out of this peptide using dicarboxylic acids. So we cross-link it with fatty acids with uh, carboxylic acid groups. And these are also naturally occurring materials from vegetable oils and other natural materials. And what we can do with these is, is very easily we can make a gel by just mixing the polyeptine lysine, the peptide, with the dicarboxylic acid in an aqueous solution at room temperature. And this then forms a gel. And by controlling the uh, cross-link density, the density of the polymer, and the uh, length of the cross-linker, 
we can get a, a family of gels with different mechanical properties. And so what we've actually been able to do is to produce a gel that's got a, a very highly reproducible mechanical properties, highly transparent, and it's got a really high water content. And we can actually make these so that they uh, can be cast in normal contact lens molds and have properties that are very similar to our existing hydrogel contact lenses. One of the really nice things that we've been able to show with this is we can actually attach covalently the polyeptine lysine to the surface of these materials. So it's the polyeptine lysine molecule that then, then interacts with the bacterial cell wall and causes cell death. So if we attach pendant groups to the edge, if you like, of the, to the surface of the contact lens, we can show that then this material is, is, has very good antimicrobial properties against both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, and actually most recently against some fungal species as well. And we can get an, at least a six log reduction in, in bacterial growth on that surface in, using these materials. Similarly though, or, or, or alongside that, we've also shown that they're very biocompatible with uh, human corneal epithelial cells. And if we put them on a culture where we've done what's a standard scratch assay, we can see that the epithelial cells will heal underneath this material without any toxic effects associated with the cells. So we're very encouraged that this is something that we could actually take forward as a, as a product. That's really impressive. Some, some really lovely science there. Um, so Paul, what, what are you doing? Yeah, so we, we published fairly widely on different approaches to, anti to making materials antimicrobial. Uh, but the two I'm kind of interested in today are, are, are basically modified calcium phosphates and modified bioactive glasses. And a little, again, like with Rachel's research, uh, we're looking at the established biomaterials that are used for making these devices, but then modifying them to introduce antimicrobial properties. So the, the, uh, the calcium phosphates is quite interesting. The underpinning basic science was funded by the UPSRC uh, with a Centre for Innovative Manufacturing and also a really talented PhD student in my, in my group, Caroline Harrison, uh, who set out the proof of concept work and the underpinning science by basically taking calcium phosphate materials that happen to be based on a nanoscale calcium phosphate uh, that is currently used as an injectable bone graft, but then adding different metal ions to see if we could introduce antimicrobial activity that was broad spectrum. Going back to that point I made earlier, one of the challenges is you often have a range of organisms you're trying to target, therefore a broad spectrum approach means you don't have to try and screen them and find the one thing. So starting with the calcium phosphates, uh, we, we published work on silver, uh, but silver is a well-known antimicrobial and, and there are some other obstacles to turning this into a commercial product. But we showed that it could work uh, and then working in rather more confidence closely with a local company called Ceramicis, we developed uh, zinc modified calcium phosphates. Uh, and again, like with, with Rachel's research, we were able to generate a six log reduction, which is far more than you need for an antimicrobial material by basically doping the calcium phosphate nanostructures with zinc ions. Uh, and we have a patent in that area, again, joint with a local company called Ceramicis Limited. Uh, and my colleague, Professor Cheryl Miller is currently pursuing uh, ways to see if we can we, we can get further funding to now get this into the clinic uh, as a real product. So you can see the whole, with EPSERC funding the original research, EPSRC, you can see that whole range now from a basic underpinning science taking us to, to the brink of, of, of what we hope will be a commercial program, um, which we can talk about shortly. The other side of, of the research, which is uh, also fascinating, is, is one of the other materials we use in bone repair is a bioactive glass. Uh, this goes back to the work of Hench famously and um, 
groups also in, in Finland. And there is a, a bioactive glass on the market that claims to have antimicrobial properties with some evidence to support it. But of course, these haven't been modified in any way. So taking a similar approach, taking metal ions, for example, copper, we've been able to show that you can dope these and introduce additional antimicrobial activity. Uh, and that's something which is rather further from, from commercial use, but nevertheless, quite an important breakthrough to show that uh, by modifying a, a basic biomaterial used in medical device industry, we can actually introduce antimicrobial properties uh, at the same time preserving the biocompatibility and the ability of the material to stimulate bone healing. So this is really very exciting. Yes, exciting indeed. There's, there's clearly a, a wide range of strategies in the pipeline. And this leads me to think more broadly about the impacts of your research on the, the wider community. Um, so Rachel, how, how can this work be translated into healthcare settings for clinical benefit? Yes, that's a very interesting question and, and something that, that perhaps we're not always as good at doing as, uh, as we are at some of the basic science of it. So for my basic science uh, work in this area is underpinned by, by funding from EPSRC, in, uh, similarly to, to Paul. Uh, but I have recently had funding from the MRC under the Developmental Funding Pathway Scheme. And this has allowed me to work very closely with, with a, a company that can manufacture medical devices and with my clinical colleagues in, in St. Paul's Eye Unit. And through this, we've managed to uh, optimize our formulation and we're currently getting that formulation tested within a, a contract research organization so that once we have that data to demonstrate biological safety, we can then work very closely with the MHRA to move into a, a first-in-man clinical safety study. And the way we're actually developing this at the moment is through uh, as a contact lens that will be used prophylactically as a bandage contact lens after corneal surgery to try and reduce the incidence of infection, uh, where of course that, that is at a high risk. The other thing that we're doing though, and we've got a lot of data in the lab, which is, is looking really promising, is because we've got um, the polyethylene lysine in, in our material, basically a positively charged molecule, we can bind uh, negatively charged antibiotics electrostatically to that material. So we can actually load our lens up with uh, antibiotics. And we've done this with a number of different currently used antibiotics um, for corneal infection. With the idea being that we could then put a contact lens on an infected eye, and we think we can get the delivery of antibiotics for up to 12 hours, which would obviously be much easier for patients than having to put drops in every 15 minutes over that first period. This is much more difficult to translate. A drug device combination is more complicated in terms of regulatory approval. So it will be a while before that gets into clinical practice. But we got some really nice underpinning data in the laboratory that demonstrates that this might be possible. That sounds really exciting. Um, I understand the issues about uh, getting over the finishing line for, for clinical approval. Um, Paul, so can you talk a little bit about your, your thoughts? Yeah, exactly as Rachel says, um, you know, the, the, the basic science needs a, a really a largely a scientific team, but as you move closer and closer to, to trying to produce a clinical product that can make a difference to people's lives, here you really need to work with industry uh, who understand far better the regulatory environment and indeed the commercial environment that takes medical technology uh, forward for patient benefit. Uh, and the other side, of course, is you need more and more clinical engagement. 
Uh, and so we in, in, in Sheffield, for example, um, we've been talking a lot to Bridget Scammell's group at Nottingham University uh, around how we might test uh, and prove the validity of the new zinc-based calcium phosphates that um, have been developed in our laboratories. Uh, and I think the, the really key point as well is to, is to remember that there are two huge benefits for the UK if we invest nationally uh, and collaboratively in this kind of research. And the first obvious benefit is that patients get access to materials that make their lives better, that eliminate infection and restore them to life and work and, and fun, of course. Uh, the other side, which I think people are less aware of, but is equally uh, important, is that if we strengthen our industrial base, this creates high value jobs that are good for both cities and communities and the nation as a whole. Uh, and so and it's been shown time and time again, albeit by quite expert groups, I don't think this always reaches the public ear, that if you invest in research and innovation, this is good for your economy and good for the long-term health and wealth of the nation. Uh, and so we're, we're really very keen to see our research in the same way sponsored to take it forward for both commercial and clinical benefit. So thank you so much, uh, Rachel and Paul. This has been a really fascinating discussion. There are clearly huge opportunities to apply material science to solving the challenge of infection. And it's also clear that we need to focus on reducing the terrible consequences for patients and their families and wider society in the UK and also in developing countries. Um, I'd also like to thank the audience. So if you've been listening to this, this is something that uh, we've really enjoyed talking about and uh, we hope that you've also enjoyed listening. So thank you very much. information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify